Mojo Radio Show News. I say to you, you gotta have Mojo, baby. Yeah. News with a difference. Cheating is on the rise in the workplace, and it's a good thing. Who said you had to have all the ideas? No one person has a monopoly on all the world's great ideas. In fact, sometimes the most unlikely people can come up with the goods, and often that's because they don't feel restricted to the usual norms. Ask your partner, friends or family. Start verbalising or get the ball rolling in an open forum. The seed of an idea might come from your discussion and give you the jumpstart you need. Remember, it's always easy to get too close to a project, so putting a fresh head onto the idea might be just what's required. So it's not really cheating. It's just making the most of all available resources. Mind you, Gordon Gecko did say, cheating is good, cheating is right, cheating works. Live from the basement of Voodoo Sound, it's time to get your mojo working. I got my mojo working. Hey everybody and welcome to the Mojo Radio Show. Thank you for jumping on board the big red bus that we call the Mojo Radio Show. What do we do here? We just find interesting people like our guest today to talk about stuff that we think we have to know about to help get our mojo working in and out of the workplace. Today is World Diabetes Day. Here at the Mojo Radio Show, we're going to do our little bit to try and rid the planet of diabetes with a world diabetes expert coming up on the show in just a few mo's. Before we do that, Robbo, welcome to the show. Behind the driver's seat there, mate. Got it in gear? Mm. Mm. Yeah, sorry. You caught me mid-caveman coffee. Yeah, I'm um, do- <laughs> doing really well, thanks. <laughs> the bus is in fourth gear and cruising along the freeway quite nicely, thank you. Caveman coffee. Matter of fact, I've got it now. <laughs> <laughs> yes, indeed. I could have it any time of the day, to be honest with you, but there you go. Um, it is a top brew. And I must say, just one thing on that, mm. uh, and there's nothing in this except the fact that it is great stuff. The MCT oil, that caveman coffee dude, that you can get from cavemancoffee.com.au here in Australia. Mention the Mojo Radio Show, they'll look after you. Uh, it's one of the few MCTs that's 100% coconut. There's no palm oils or anything else going into it. I have it every day when I do my deep work. Love going it. strong, is it? Going strong. Better than Australian <laughs> cricket team. Anyway. <laughs> Let's not go there. The Mojo Radio Show. Let's get into the show this week, Robbo, because this mm. is uh, such an important topic. And I'm actually very, I'm delighted to introduce another professor to mm. the show. It's making us sound awfully smart, right? Professors always make us sound smart. And look good. And look good, which is even more difficult than making us <laughs> sound smart, let's be honest. <laughs> so, as we said, today is World Diabetes Day, and that's an international event to raise awareness around diabetes. And it's celebrated every day on this day, November 14. Now, where we're going to go with this show, and this is fascinating, the theme for this year, for 2016, our World Diabetes Day, is Eyes on Diabetes. And apart from focusing on what we can do to prevent type 2 diabetes and the impact it can have on you and me, our families, the other thing that I wasn't aware of, that Eyes on Diabetes, is the massive impact that diabetes can have on our eyesight and the loss of vision. Did yeah. you know that, Ruben? I did know that. My um, my cousin died uh, last year at the age of 56, and he'd actually been blind for about eight years from diabetes. So, yeah, I, uh, I've got first-hand experience of it. Uh, and the, the stats we've got for you in the show are frightening, but... Um, Our guest today is Professor Alicia Jenkins, who's a professor of diabetes and vascular medicine at the Uni of Sydney and an endocrinologist 
I think I pronounced that right, from St Vincent's Hospital in Melbourne here Mm. in Australia. Uh, Now, Professor Jenkins was also part of a fabulous world initiative. It's Mm. based out of Melbourne called Insulin for Life. We're going to dig into that today. And joining Professor Jenkins on the line will be Joe Sader, who's a volunteer, part of the global board for Insulin for Life and their marketing director. So, guys, welcome to the Mojo Radio Show. Thank you very much, Gary. Pleased to be here. Alicia, what sort of work would you be doing on a, on a day-to-day basis and who would you be doing it for typically? Uh, I, I am a professor at the University of Sydney, a professor of diabetes and vascular medicine, blood vessel health, but I see myself primarily as a diabetes doctor, uh, otherwise known as an endocrinologist. And uh, I work uh, clinically in uh, at St Vincent's Hospital in Melbourne. Uh, and on a day-to-day basis, uh, I look after uh, mainly adults, particularly with type 1 diabetes. And also, I have a research team, uh, which is predominantly based at the University of Sydney and some of the University of Melbourne, where we're interested in predicting and preventing uh, the complications of diabetes and also doing some studies with with modern technologies such as insulin pumps. Uh, But I've also had the opportunity uh, uh, through my uh, medical research and some of my clinical training that I did overseas to become aware of uh, the very different uh, adverse outcomes for people with diabetes in disadvantaged countries. So uh, as in my so-called spare time, uh, in the year 2000, I joined Insulin for Life Australia, which has grown progressively into Insulin for Life Global. Uh, so uh, with Insulin for Life Global, and that complements my sort of ivory tower and uh, <laughs> advantage work by helping improve diabetes outcomes uh, for people with diabetes in disadvantaged countries. We have got a large listening audience in the United States, Alicia, and I saw a stat on the weekend that said that 25 million people in America are suffering from diabetes. And my question is, with the work you're doing at the moment, if we talk about diabetes by itself before we get on to this, the global work you're doing, just to put us in the picture with what you're seeing as a professor in this area, is the situation worsening? Is it stable? Are we on top of it? Like, where do we stand with this? Unfortunately, the situation uh, globally is is worsening. Uh, on average, in Western countries, about 8% of the population have diabetes and about 90% have type 2 diabetes, which usually starts in middle or older age. And uh, the... Uh, the others, uh, uh, a common type is type 1 diabetes, which usually starts in childhood. And type 1 diabetes is the one where people have to have insulin injections on a daily basis or their, their life will be measured uh, in you know, sort of days or, or weeks. Both type 2 and type 1 diabetes are becoming much more common in every country, both affluent and disadvantaged countries. Part of that is because of changing lifestyles. This is for type 2 diabetes, uh, where obesity and sedentary lifestyles are unfortunately becoming much more common. Surprisingly, type 1 diabetes 
which is not related to lifestyle, is also becoming more common. And that's also a very active area of research as to why that might be the case. And there are some theories about uh, lower rates of infection, for example, in early childhood, predisposing the, the, the body to develop type 1 diabetes and other conditions where the body doesn't recognise uh, its own cells and attacks itself. So... I have read uh, that one in two people could possibly be undiagnosed. In fact, that they maybe are diabetic, but they don't know it. How do I? How do I specifically know? I mean, do I have to go and get specific tests? Are there telltale markers that the normal person should be aware of that would give them an indication that they should get checked up? I mean, if one and two are being undiagnosed, what should we be telling our listeners? Gary, that, that statistic uh, is right for uh, many, many countries uh, and would vary around the world uh, as to one in two or where there's screening programs that might be, you know, one in four have diabetes and don't don't know about it. That refers to type 2 diabetes. First of all, with type 1 diabetes, uh, that's a form of diabetes that you would be highly unlikely to have and not know about it because it usually has a very sudden onset with a lot of thirst and frequency of urination and marked weight loss. Uh, so usually people have... Uh, have noticed those problems for only about a week or two before, at least in affluent countries, they're going off to a doctor and the diagnosis is relatively easy. However, type 2 diabetes is the one where it can be silent. Certainly, this, the what people may notice is a bit of thirst, uh, a bit of weight loss, having to get up at night to, to pass urine, but they may also not notice anything at all, or attribute things that they do notice, such as tiredness, to oh, I'm very busy, uh, I'm uh, or I'm getting older. So that's why in countries like Australia and and America, and many affluent countries, then it's recommended that people uh, be screened uh, by their doctor uh, by a blood glucose test, usually. Uh, and often it's recommended that that screening starts about age 40. If there is a high-risk uh, situation, such as someone from a particular ethnic group or they've got a very strong family history of, of diabetes or women, for example, who had diabetes during pregnancy, then it's recommended that they may start that screening process on an earlier basis. Uh, so, uh, so usually... Uh, Many people in affluent countries with type 2 diabetes will be picked up because of that screening program that our affluent healthcare systems, fortunately, can afford. And that early diagnosis means that the diabetes can be controlled uh, sooner and also people can be screened for and protected from some of the long-term diabetes complications, which can include devastating things such as loss of vision and kidney failure and premature heart attacks and amputations. I wonder, Alicia, about the generations to come. Diabetes, type 1 or type 2, 
Can it be passed on genetically? Yes, there actually is a strong genetic component for both type 1 and type 2 diabetes. But there's also an environmental factor uh, which is most evident in type 2 diabetes that is much more modifiable. It certainly is very hard. We can't yet change uh, the genes that we, we, we have. But uh, people can have uh, the genes, say, for type 2 diabetes, but not develop type 2 diabetes because they have remained trim, physically active, eating a healthy diet uh, and, and not, not smoking. Uh, so, and often those habits are formed as, as children. So uh, raising our children and our grandchildren to have healthy lifestyles are important messages both from within a family but also from a community and a public health uh, setting. But unfortunately, with type 1 diabetes, uh, while there's a lot of research uh, and some of it is starting to show promise, there's, there's nothing yet that's clinically available, uh, such as a vaccine or a medication that we can use to stop someone who was genetically predisposed to develop type 1 diabetes from getting it. Once I've got it, have I always got it? It can sometimes be reversed. Mm. Uh, such as with weight loss. And, for example, uh, taking the uh, extreme where people are uh, very obese and they have the bariatric surgery uh, for type 2 diabetes and they lose a substantial amount of uh, their, their body fat, then their type 2 diabetes uh, can go away or... Uh, at least become easier to manage, so requiring less medication. Uh, but unfortunately, uh, type 1 diabetes uh, cannot be reversed. Let's talk about what's going on around the world with this, guys, that um, you've said that three-quarters of people with diabetes live in low- or middle-income countries around the world. Joe, what, what sort of work is Insulin for Life specifically doing? 50% of the world's population who need insulin, which... Um, is a, is a drug to keep uh, people with diabetes alive, actually live in underdeveloped countries, they cannot actually afford or access insulin, um, which is a real problem. And then I guess if you look at first world countries, um, you know, such as Australia, the US and the UK, um, we're so lucky that we have um, varying degrees of socialist healthcare systems where insulin is is um, fairly well subsidised by the government. Um, and so affordability in general um, is pretty good. Um, in addition to that, um, we, we have people who change their therapies and that means they go from one insulin type to another. And what can happen with that is a fair bit of waste. And so what um, the original founder um, over the years, Ron Raab, um, determined was that there was so much waste happening and yet we know that 50% of those who need insulin in underdeveloped countries can't afford or access it um, and in many cases leaving them for dead. So we wanted to connect those two problems together and that's how Insulin for Life um, came about. So there's affiliates um, that started and uh, the first affiliate started in Australia um, and now there are other 10 other affiliates um, in first world countries around the world, such as Canada, um, the Americas, um, countries in Europe and, and the UK as well. It's half time on the Mojo Show. 
And time to pause for a cause. Hi, I'm Melissa Ambrosini and my cause that I would love to mention today is Destiny Rescue. Now this is freeing children from sex slavery and you can get in contact with them by heading to their website destinyrescue.com to free a child costs around $1,500. It's such a beautiful cause and something that is so powerful to do. Please help however you can. Any donation the Mojo Radio Show. Could you take us back to 1984, guys? Ron Rob is in Melbourne and he reads a story which started this whole movement. Can you talk us through the backstory of how Insulin for Life started in Ron's mind? At the time, Ron was uh, employed at the International Diabetes Institute and uh, his work did uh, involve work within Australia and also with disadvantaged countries. And as Ron... Uh, it is known publicly Ron has lived with type 1 diabetes uh, since childhood and he was very aware of the great opportunity that Australians uh, with type 1 diabetes have and how that's a very different story uh, from people in disadvantaged countries. So uh, Ron uh, recognised that there was a lot of insulin that uh, was being discarded uh, such as people changing uh, types of insulin or women who temporarily had insulin requiring diabetes during pregnancy. So uh, Ron started this model where in date, unopened, no longer needed insulin in Australia uh, was collected and uh, shipped, donated to hospitals uh, and clinics uh, in disadvantaged countries overseas. So from that first shipment in 1984, uh, we have grown to a, a centre that's uh, based in Ballarat and run by Neil Donlan, who as well as being on the IFL Australia board is also on the Insulin for Life Global board. Uh, and uh, he's sending out a shipment of insulin and related supplies such as blood glucose testing strips. Uh, on average, one or two shipments a week go out. And uh, he's also receiving uh, several dozen uh, smaller shipments from hospitals, clinics and individuals within Australia uh, who have got uh, in-date, unopened, no longer needed diabetes supplies that they are kind enough to donate to uh, Insulin for Life Australia. And so this model has, has gradually sort of uh, grown. So we mentor other affiliates. Our largest affiliates are in Insulin for Life uh, USA uh, that's run by the uh, Atkinsons in Florida and uh, Insulin for Life or Insulin zum Leben in, in Germany. Uh, and as Joe mentioned, there's now 10 countries in more affluent countries who collect this in-date uh, unopened, no longer needed uh, diabetes supplies and ship them according to an agreed protocol to reliable hospitals and clinics in disadvantaged countries. And I believe we've sent so far to uh, about 94 different countries uh, since 1984. The value of just the insulin alone uh, that we've sent uh, over this time is, is $12 million worth my understanding is that if our system is working properly, we have a pancreas producing this insulin. If somebody needs insulin because their body is not producing it as it should, 
How was that insulin produced? So people with type 1 diabetes uh, usually uh, no longer sort of produce very much insulin. They're sometimes tiny amounts. People with type 2 diabetes uh, often still produce a little bit more insulin, but their body is resistant to its action. But over time, their body, their pancreas also stops uh, producing it. So the insulin that was first used and was used up until a few decades ago used to be extracted from uh, pig and uh, beef uh, pancreas, uh, but now it's uh, uh, manu- manufactured uh, and synthesised to match exactly the human insulin. Alicia, you've been at this for, for quite a while now as a professor um, working in diabetes on a daily basis, you've been heavily involved with insulin for life. You've seen it grow from something that started in Melbourne to now being in countries around the world. What's your proudest moment so far for insulin for life? The knowledge that we are easing and saving lives. Uh, while I have only had the opportunity to go to Uzbekistan in 2003 and, and meet some of the people we supported, uh, I am very proud when I uh, hear usually by the, the doctors uh, who to whom we send the supplies. They send us the stories and the photos. Uh, and when I go to some of the international diabetes conferences, I get to meet uh, the doctors and occasionally some of the, 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 the people that we have supported uh, who are able to come to these conferences as, as lay advocates. And so I'm particularly proud that uh, we are easing and saving the lives of people who otherwise would not be here. But I'm also troubled by that I know that they're the tip of the iceberg, that there are so many more other people out there that uh, we, we can't help. Today is November 14, which is the start of World Diabetes Day. And the Facebook page that I saw for World Diabetes Day said that 600 million people will be living with type 2 diabetes by 2035. So we're talking some 20 years' time. There'll be 600 million people living with type 2 diabetes. In your mind, what would Robo and I do to make sure that we're not going to become a statistic in amongst that 600 million? What would be your advice? Uh, To to lead a healthy lifestyle uh, by remaining trim and physically active, eating a healthy diet and uh, not, not smoking. So, uh, and hopefully, as, as well as looking after yourselves, as you're doing today, you'll continue to spread the message to people that uh, uh, that's what they, uh, uh, they, should, they should be doing. With the work you're doing, and a particular research that currently is happening... Is there some secret thing that has been found of recent times that if that's included into our healthy lifestyle, our eating habits, can actually have an impact on diabetes for an individual? Is there anything you're coming across yet that's of interest? No, unfortunately, there's no magic bullet. It would would be wonderful (laughs) if there there was a nice sort of... uh, uh, herb or vegetable, uh, but it, it's that healthy lifestyle and, and exercise that can often uh, uh, reduce the genetic risk that, that someone that someone has. Uh, and type one diabetes, I've mentioned, there's there's nothing. We're certainly better at controlling both type 1 and type 2 diabetes and also diabetes in pregnancy. And we've got progressively better insulins and multiple different types 
of uh, tablets that uh, can be used in type 1 and type 2 diabetes. And there's also some other uh, injectable type drugs. And we're also uh, getting better at reducing in the affluent countries the rates of loss of vision and uh, kidney failure and cardiovascular disease, such as due, uh, for example, the cardiovascular disease rates are coming down because of uh, healthier lifestyles and probably the, the statin-type cholesterol-lowering medication. Gary and I are actually working on a theory that coffee may well be a global cure-all. Do you reckon we might be on the right track with diabetes as well? We're, I mean, we're drinking it by the bucket load. <laughs> Actually, I was just at a, a, a conference uh, in, in Taiwan and uh, coffee is certainly uh, one of the things that some of the observational studies suggest that about four cups of coffee a day uh, can reduce the risk of uh, developing type 2 diabetes. Bang. Oh, guys. All right. Hey, (laughs) Professor Gary, Professor Robbo. (laughs) The Buddha Brew is going global. We're onto something. Can I just uh, ask you something, uh, Alicia? This developing vision loss, I I actually saw a stat that said one third of people living with diabetes will develop vision loss. I I hadn't heard as a punter, uh, I hadn't heard a lot about that. Is that that true that almost a third of people who are living with diabetes could lose their vision? Gary, on a global scale, that is is correct. In fact, uh, diabetes is the commonest cause of adult onset loss of vision, of adult onset blindness uh, globally. And as I mentioned uh, earlier, the, the, the risk of vision loss in countries like Australia and uh, and America and Canada and Europe is uh, is much less such that the risk of someone actually going blind from diabetes uh, is uh, 10% and probably likely to get even even lower. But in the countries that Insulin for Life serves, the risk of going blind is still very high. Uh, the risk of losing your eyesight due to diabetes is very strongly linked to factors such as blood glucose control. So people in the developing countries uh, often have blood, blood glucose, blood sugar levels that are uh, four or five times what a non-diabetic person would have. And so I'm aware through Insulin for Life of teenagers and young adults who have, have gone blind. And often it's when they lose their vision that their quality of life becomes so poor that some of them will say to their family who have been struggling desperately to uh, afford their diabetes supplies and their medical care that don't bother anymore. So uh, Insulin for Life Global, to try and address this, we're first of all trying to get insulin and blood glucose monitoring strips and syringes there so that we can get good uh, blood glucose control, much better glucose control, and that substantially reduces the risk of anyone losing their eyesight and also developing kidney failure or amputations, nerve damage, cardiovascular disease and dying prematurely. Uh, and also uh, we are 
uh, with help of some optometrists and ophthalmologists who were prepared to to, uh, to volunteer their services uh, to try and take uh, photos of the eyes of some of the children who attend the Insulin for Life diabetes camps that we help, help run. Because this screening for diabetes uh, eye damage is not always available, or if it is available, it's not always affordable to the poorest of the poor. And fortunately, there are some excellent eye organisations out there, like Australia's Fred Hollow Foundation uh, and Orbis uh, and uh, other sort of eye organisations who are also starting to address uh, the burden of, of vision loss from, from diabetes. But just... I mean, screening the eyes and treating the, the local problem in the eyes, such as by laser treatment, uh, can certainly help preserve what remaining vision there is. But you have to have the, uh, the whole body treatment of the good glucose control along with good blood pressure and good cholesterol control. Joe, being World Diabetes Day and the marketing director for Insulin for Life, what would be your request of our listeners today? Our biggest challenge is the transport costs of getting this insulin that people so kindly donate into the hands of those who need it. So our key message is please support us um, by donating whatever you can to help us cover the costs of transport. Um, and, and if you do have diabetes and you do have an excess of um, supplies and insulin, please donate that as well. That's our key message. Where, Joe, where would you send people? If people wanted to find out more and to specifically help, um, where would you send them? To our website, which is insulinforlife.org. And that's four with a F-O-R. You know, it's funny, guys. I hear you talk about this and I hear you a number of times say, keep yourself trim, get rid of the excess weight, get moving, eat well, have a nutritious diet. If you don't, it seems like a pretty dark place to be in if you have diabetes. And the fact that, number one, you could be influencing your children and your children's children. Number two, you could be putting yourself in a position where you could lose your sight. I just don't understand why people aren't making more of an effort to do that. And they're carrying weight, not eating well, particularly in a corporate world, they're not moving. And they're putting themselves right in, the, in, in harm's way. They're putting themselves right in front of the train. It just fascinates me with all these arguments as the reasons why you do it. People still aren't doing it. It must be terribly frustrating in your line of work to see this every day. It is, but uh, in, our, in our busy lives and uh, with plenty of uh, comfort food out there, uh, and convenience food, uh, then it can be very uh, tempting not to. However, with a lot of uh, individual effort and also, uh, you know, sort of uh, public campaigns, uh, the, the obesity situation uh, is starting to turn turn around, particularly in uh, older and, and middle-aged people. Uh, there still is uh, an, a rising... Um, a worrying sort of amount of uh, being overweight or obese in our children and, and young adults. But I think the message is uh, is getting through to people in, uh, in uh, many affluent countries. Um, and we didn't become uh, an overweight and obese 
uh, nation sort of in a few years. So it's going to take us a few years to turn the tide. But I, I think and the efforts will need to be ongoing both at, at individual and healthcare system and, and government and public uh, level. But I think we are starting to see the tide turning in the same way as we saw the smoking rates uh, you know, sort of fall substantially. Alicia and Joe, this has been great. Uh, today is World Diabetes Day and the theme is Eyes on Diabetes. And we thank you for putting our eyes onto diabetes. Um, I found it fascinating. I think it really is very empowering. I think it's scary in a lot of ways. But if people don't put the rubber on the road and make some lifestyle changes if they need to, I think this will help them on that journey, get their mojo working. And number two, for anybody listening who would like to make a difference and save lives, um, do the right thing, we will put a link to the website for Insulin for Life onto our show notes. And we will be promoting the fact that we are right behind World Diabetes Day. So um, Alicia and Joe, thanks so much for your time. It's been terrific. Thanks so much for having us. Thank you very much. Thanks, Time guys. Time for another coffee. Please. Absolutely. <laughs> another bucket. <laughs> Interrupt this program to bring you a special bucket. <laughs> the Mojo Radio Show. Right. Ladies and gentlemen. Now. I spent about oh, three or four years watching my f- cousin die of complications from diabetes a couple of years back. We talk about how bad it can be watching a family member die of cancer. I've got to tell you that it was just as bad. It was just as sad, just as awful. I was doing a speaking job at Noosa on the weekend, Robbo, and Mm. I said, we were talking about Mojo and I was talking to the audience and I said, you know, if you don't understand diabetes, the effect it has on your life and others, how the fact you could lose your vision, how our wellness is a critical part of what we do, can lead to heart disease, cancer, and influence our children. If that doesn't, if that doesn't stoke the fire enough to mm. actually do something, make a difference, and change what's currently happening, I don't know what will. Yeah, absolutely. And please, folks, start it early. Start with your kids. You know the amount of sugar that is in everything that you buy off the shelf at a supermarket for a kid is staggering. You know, know what you're putting in your kid's mouth from day one because, trust me, you, you never want to watch someone go through what I watched my cousin Peter go through. It was just awful. The Mojo Radio Show. Now, Robert, you know that I work with people uh, on their mojo, people mm. in different parts of the world. I've kind of got a guy in Serbia, a guy in Poland. Serbia? A lady in... Vanuatu. Is the Serbia guy a bit of a chilly relationship? <laughs> <laughs> Top like, real go-getter. It's, it's very interesting. Yeah. But um, what I love about all this is hearing them, what they're up to. And through those conversations, and I must say, being out and about on the circuit, I'm hearing a lot of people who are either in the process of finding work mm. or about to go through the process of finding work. And on the weekend, I had a very interesting coffee conversation with a guy called Alan Locke, who's the executive director of an international recruitment firm called EIM. Now, based on what we do on the show, I became pretty curious. I bought him plenty of coffees. and <laughs> Got him talking. Got him talking. Got him, got him jazzed up. I'm all, I'm yeah. all jacked up Mountain Dew. And got him talking about, well, if I or somebody else was looking for a gig, what do mm. we do? I wrote a whole bunch of notes down and I thought this was very interesting. Just for people to write in their journal, should they be in the position, about to go through it, or wanting to help somebody else who's lost their mojo, who's looking for a gig? Now, here's Alan's advice. 
Send your CV and make sure it's an updated CV. Send it to every headhunter and recruiter you know. But the interesting thing is expect them to acknowledge the receipt of it, but then don't expect to hear any more. <laughs> he said, one of the most important things to manage your own expectations, he said, what is terribly important for you to get work right now? You're just one of many and or hundreds that could sit in a recruiter's file until the day when you fit and you can help them to fill a gap. Yeah. We talked about something that I got from the startup of you, which was the book by Reid Hoffman, who's the guy who started LinkedIn. Alan and I agree that another strategy, so you send your CV off, but manage your expectations. The second thing is make a list of the 10 or 20 people who are the most influential people you know and make sure you contact them and say good day. Tell them the sort of things you're after, the attributes of what a great job would mean to you, and let them know that you're looking. And the one thing I would also say with that is ensure that when you go out and make your list of, say, the top 20 people, make sure you get your backstory ready because you need to have a congruent backstory of what's happened, where you're at, what you're looking for, so you can deliver it succinctly to somebody. Uh, it doesn't have to be over a coffee. It could be over a telephone call or whatever. But that's the other thing that I thought was a really powerful way to do it. I also would get a hold of Reid Hoffman's book, The Startup of You, because that is a good book for talking about networking and finding the next gig and using LinkedIn as a tool to help you do that. Right. Alan was very big on doing your due diligence on any companies you talk to, not just on the financials and what the gig entails, but also understanding from either current or previous employees or reading online about what's the culture like of this company? What are the people really like? Do, do they have an understanding of where the business is going and where you might fit into it? And part of that due diligence is if you get an appointment to turn up and have a chat, you'll separate yourself from everybody else with the due diligence that you have done. So anyway, a couple of quick things. I think they are quite powerful. They may sound quite mm. simple. If you get the gig or you are about to take the gig, one of the things Alan talked about, he was very, very bullish about this, is what's happening today is a lot of people want the gig, but they're not prepared to get after it and get it done. The two things you can bring to a company is, number one, you get the skills, the competencies, the desire, the passion, but number two, you will get it done. You will make it work. And he thought that in the interview process, those are critical things to make sure you get across the other person. As you're passionate about it, you're smart, you're creative, you're innovative, you're a good problem solver, but you get after it. You will work hard, you will get it done. So, uh Hmm. How'd we go with that, mate? That was pretty good. The, the job hunting thing reminds me of when I was actually trying to get into radio because we all know, well, everybody who has ever tried to get into radio knows how difficult that can be. And I remember, we're talking 1988 now, 89, when I was trying to get into radio, I had a list. I had a, a list of every radio station in Australia and once every two months I would sit down at the typewriter and type up a letter and send it off. And I remember once there was a job going in a town, I was about three and a half hours drive out of Sydney, I saw it advertised and jumped in the car and just drove out there. I mean, I didn't get the job, but <laughs> you know what I mean? You just got to show that you want it badly, don't you, really? Well, I think you're right, mate. And I uh, I thought Alan, Alan Locke from EIM was just spot on with what he talked about. Simple things, but quite mm. powerful. And I think also by, by doing the things that he talked about, the stuff that you just mentioned, mm. it makes you feel like you're, you're being on the front foot. It makes you feel as though you're being aggressive to finding a new gig. So I will yeah. put a link to EIM in the show notes should anybody want to look up Alan and have a chat to him. Top guy, mm. fantastic company, top end of their game. Uh, so there you go. Who paid for the coffee? <laughs> 
Yeah. <laughs> Alan. <laughs> oh, so, you, so you got a segment for the show and free coffee. There you go. You're doing well. And it was Fisher for Roasters. <laughs> God of Rock, thank you for this chance to kick ass. We are your humble servants. Please give us the power to blow people's minds with our high voltage rock. In your name we pray. Amen. 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 Now let's get out there and melt some faces! The Mojo Radio Shows. Lessons in Rock. We haven't done one of these for a while. No, and this is a lesson of rock and it's it's actually quite emotional because it is finishing off our story about diabetes on World Diabetes Day. And it's about a band mm. and the band is called A Tribe Called Quest. Now, you know our show's a little bit country, a little bit rock and roll, a little bit Gangster, yeah, just lately it's gone a little bit gangster, yeah. <laughs> well, this is this is a, a fascinating story about a band, a, a tribe called Quest is the name of the band. They're a, a hip hop band, mm. and the story is about two rappers who are lifelong friends. Now, you may have heard of one of these rappers, Q Tip, yep, and the other guy was Fife Dog, and that's who the story is about. This is the New York Times, and why it's so pertinent to our show today is that. A Tribe Called Quest are about to launch their first album in 18 years. During the making of the album, Q-Tip and Fife Dog were talking on the phone and they were going through and discussing different tracks. And this was in the wee hours of the morning. Q-Tip was in his million-dollar pimped-up studio (laughs) Fife Dog was at his house. Chewing on a bone. (laughs) And the next morning when Q-Tip woke up, there was a phone call from Five Dogs' manager saying that he had died overnight from complications caused from diabetes. Mm. So naturally the band was in complete shock and their new album was out in America on Friday and there is a track on there called We Got It From Here, Thank You For Your Service. I suspect that this is going to be a massive and very emotional album for the band and I mm. think the, the lesson of rock for us is that we should never underestimate what diabetes can do to us, the people around us, our sight, our health, our mojo, our, our mojo from the bedroom to the boardroom. And we hope that this show delivers a message saying, folks, it's completely in our hands. It's the choices we make. But we're going to finish up today with a track from A Tribe Called Quest. That's our lesson of rock and we are out. like a tribe does before this did you really know what i was comprehend to the track force why cuz getting mentions on the tip of the vibe buzz rock and roll to the beat of the funk fuzz wipe your feet really good on the rhythm rug if you feel the urge to freak do the jitterbug come and spread your arms if you really need a hug afrocentric living is a big shrug a life filled with that's what i love a lower plateau is what we're above if you diss us, we won't even think of We'll nip of the doggy, give a big shove This rhythm really fits like a snug glove Like a box of positives, it's a plus love As the tribe flies high like a dove 
kick it. Right now, Fife is a poinsettia. At times, I'm a studio conveyor. Mr. Dinkins, would you please be my mayor? You'll be doing us a really big favor. Boy, this track really has a lot of flavor. When it comes to rhythms, Quest is your savior. Follow us for the funky behavior. Make a note on the rhythm we gave you. Feel free, drop your pants, yank your hair. Do you like the garments that we wear? I instruct you to be the obeyer. A rhythm recipe that you'll savor. Doesn't matter if you're minor or major. Yes, the tribe of the game with the player. As you inhale like a breath of fresh air. Radio Show is produced and recorded in the studios of Voodoo Sound. For more tips and tools to get your mojo working, check us out on Facebook at the Mojo Radio Show or online at themojoradioshow.com. For more about Gary, see garybertwhistle.com or to polish your next audio or video production, check out voodoosound.com.au and for the right voice, realtimecasting.com. Andrew Peters speaking. See you next time. <laughs>